Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. When do we take control of our lives and our destiny? We're a small country, but we punch way above our weight. Like, I'm filming now at this stage, to be honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was horrendous. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Eight weeks today. Eight weeks today is Christmas Eve. Will you be able to get everything into stock for the Christmas? Will you get the food? Will you get the presents? Will you get the tree? Will you get the turkey? Are there enough trucks to bring all those from the, from the stock room and the warehouse to your local shop? There is a haulage crisis looming for Christmas. We'll talk about that later on this morning. Also, it being the witching weekend... I will have a real-life witch. Yes, I will be speaking to a real-life witch on the opinion line this morning. That's not her laughing, by the way. I just thought it might sound nice. Good morning, 1850-715-996. The number to call, the text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. But we do have to look, first of all, at the increasing concern in case numbers in COVID-19. The Tonishton now saying yesterday, you can't actually rule anything out when it comes to more lockdowns, even though we, we firmly hope and believe that it won't be driven to another lockdown. We, we, I, we really, really do. But things are getting very serious. Over 21,000 cases have now been reported over the past 10 days. That's a 27% increase. That's up over a quarter on the previous 10 days. The last time anything this high, 2,605, was the 21st of January. That was the last time we had a daily total as big as we had yesterday. Uh, There's also been a very sharp increase in cases among children in the past two weeks. That's according to, to Nefis. Now, things are starting to change from today. Close contacts of people 
with COVID-19 will start to get packs of rapid antigen tests. If you are a close contact, if you're fully vaccinated and asymptomatic and you're a close contact, you'll get a pack of five antigen tests in the post and be asked to use them one today, one, two days time. And if that turns up positive, you go for a PCR. That's a change. There are also calls this morning for antigen testing in schools because we knew, we know that children, unfortunately, are a major problem with the transmission of the virus. Not that they get very sick, some of them do. Not that they get very sick or anything, but they are. Children are transmitting the virus. We know this. A lot of people would not like it to be true, but it is true. Professor Kingston Mills joins me again on the programme uh, from Trinity College, Professor of Experimental Immunology. Uh, Kingston, good to speak with you once again. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Let me start with the antigen testing. You have been saying for months we should be doing more of it. Now we're sending out packs of five in the post. Is it enough? Uh, I don't think it's enough yet. I mean, it's, it's disappointing that antigen testing hadn't been implemented a month ago. I was part of the Mark Ferguson group back in um, February, March, that um, advocated the use of antigen testing across many different areas, in businesses and events and and in, in, in education settings. So um, it was disappointing that it has taken so long for this to come to where it is, but at least it's moving in the right direction. Why is it being done in so peaceful, piecemeal a fashion, do you think? I mean, there's a lot of suspicion about ancient testing, and to be fair, um, a lot of the ancient tests that were on the market were of dubious quality. The, the market was flooded with um, series of ancient tests that come primarily from China. A lot of these hadn't been properly validated in, 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 in the context of whether they were effective or not, and some of them now have been, and they've got the C market, which is a European standard mark. Um, the HSE have recommended certain tests uh, which should be used, and they have acquired, um, you know, uh, a stock of, of, of antigen tests, which they're now using, for example, in, in meat factories, nursing homes, and and now, as you as you said, for sending out to people who are um, asymptomatic contacts to test themselves in their homes. I was in a supermarket this morning, Professor. I won't name which supermarket, but I was getting some fruit and some water to bring into work, and there's antigen tests on the shelf in front of me at four ninety five yeah. a pop. Now, I did see a CE mark on it. Uh, I picked up the box and examined it. So they are now out there in huge numbers. Do you think yeah. people will take them and start using them at home? And can we rely on that? I mean, people are already um, taking them and using them at home. In fact, there's a portal on the HE website where you can... Um, submit the results of your antigen tests, whether it be negative or positive. That's very useful information for the HSC to know because they can then gauge not only the, the, the amount of them that's being used, but the, the, how effective they are. Um, and so if people do go into a shop and buy one and use it, whether the result is negative or positive, they should um, report that on the HSC website. But more importantly, if it is if it does come up positive, they should then contact the HSC and have it confirmed by, by PCR because there are some false positives. So you might be isolating unnecessary if you're positive. Yes. Um, there are also false negatives. So, you know, one of the things about these tests, they're not as accurate as PCR. Yeah. But the, the important thing is that they catch people in the in the very infectious phase 
of the infection. And because they're not, not, not as sensitive as PCR, they tend not to detect people when they're recovering or, or you know, maybe in the earlier stages of symptoms. But really the important thing is they do catch people when they're infectious, therefore more likely to transmit it. And yeah. that's the real use of these tests, stopping transmission, you know, people who are asymptomatic that mm. might know they have COVID-19. Here's a question that I have probably asked you before, so apologies in advance for doing so, but in a typical case and of, of COVID-19, in other words, the majority of people who put it put it past them in a, in, in a, in a week or a fortnight and feel mildly unwell, what is the period of infectiousness? Do we know? Is it 24, 48, 72? Do we know how long that period is? Well, the answer is um, it varies very much between individuals. And one thing we do know is people who have been vaccinated and, and have breakthrough infections and get infected, their period of infection is much shorter. So while they, have a, they may have a similar viral peak at the beginning of the infectious period, the drop-off is much quicker. So it seems like even though the vaccines might be stopping infection in all people, and there are some breakthroughs, but in those breakthroughs, the, the infectious period is considerably reduced. Okay. So, I mean, the sort of infectious period in the non-vaccinated that are being talked about are five to seven days. Um, uh, you know, it varies hugely between individuals and it dep- depends on the extent of the infection of that individual. So you can't put a, a figure on it and say you're going to be infectious for exactly three days because sure. that's not how it works. So so really, the important thing is if you have still have symptoms, you should continue to isolate for, for some time after those symptoms have, have resolved. Um, so, so I think that's, that's the important message, not to, not to pass it on and not to make an assumption um, yeah. that it's three days and therefore you can, you can go about your business. The idea of sending them out in the post, like in 2021, where it can take two to three days to get a letter from here to some parts of the country and occasionally some parts of the city, is that the best way to do it, do you think? I'm, I don't necessarily think it is. I mean, there was talk about you know using um, pharmacies, for example, as, as a mode of, of, of trans, uh, you know having this other trouble. With that is, people have to actually then go to a, um, somewhere while they're infected. Obviously, they get a family member to do it for them. Um, that might be a better approach. Uh, mm. I, I do recognise that you know sending them the post is, is going to result in a delay. But you know the other way of looking at it is, if you go for a PCR test, you're going to be faced with a with a up to a two-day delay to get the results of that test, whereas when you get your antigen test, you've had the results in 15 minutes. Yes. So, so that's the you know the, the speed is probably going to be going to be similar in the end when you're going to have your data. Matt, actually, that's a good comparison. If you get called for a PCR test today, you you may have it tomorrow, and you will get the results probably by Sunday. So, yeah, the time period is pretty pretty much the same. Uh, just before I let you go, Professor, are you aware of the latest report published yesterday in in the Lancet about infectiousness of vaccinated people. A lot of people are saying this morning, crikey, why are we bothering if we're as infectious as those who are unvaccinated? And I'm hoping to speak with one of the authors of that report maybe maybe on Monday. But can you maybe put some some light onto that, yeah. that new um, I, t- study. I think if, if this is a report in Lancet Infectious Diseases you might be referring to, which yeah. was published last night. Um, yeah, I mean, I've read that, or at least I had a quick read of it last night. Um, so what, it's, what it was was one of these household contact studies. So they looked at people in a household that were infected and then how much they were able to transmit that to, a, to another person. And what they um, showed was people who were 
um, vaccinated um, were slightly less likely to transmit it than those who weren't vaccinated, but, but people who were vaccinated were still able to transmit it. That's the, that doesn't mean that the person who w- was infected is, 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 is as sick as the person who was not vaccinated. And the really key take message is that while the vaccines are not stopping transmission necessarily in all people, they are stopping the very serious illness in most people. So the chances of someone ending up in ICU and, and dying from COVID-19 are substantially reduced in the vaccinated cohort. And that's the important point about getting vaccinated. Your, your risks of getting really severe disease are diminished. There are still people that are vaccinated are getting infected. We know that. And, and these vaccines are not inducing what we call sterilizing immunity, that is stopping the infection completely. And the next generation vaccine will be designed to do exactly that. And the problem, the, the reason for this is partly to do with the fact that the variants, the Delta variant in particular, has evaded, the, it's changed this coat, making it more difficult for the antibodies that were generated against the original strains to respond to that virus, recognize it and eliminate it. So it, 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 the vaccines are struggling somewhat because it's a Delta variant. But the good news is that the companies are working frantically away on new versions of these vaccines designed specifically for Delta variants. They should be available in the new year for boosters. But in the meantime, getting a third dose of the existing vaccine was helped significantly in terms of boosting the overall antibody response and therefore the antibody response also against the Delta variant. What do you make, lastly, what do you make of the World Health Organization who seem to be a bit divided on this? Yes, the third dose has great results that we can see that from research in Israel, but the WHO is saying, look, huge swathes of the world haven't even had one dose yet. So where, where do you stand on that? Okay, so I was on a panel with Mike Ryan from WHO at the McGill School earlier in the week, and he put up that argument. And my counter-argument to that argument was, I'm not disagreeing with him. I think the developing world, the, the low-income countries need to be resourced and helped with getting vaccines. But I think if we don't vaccinate the vulnerable people in this country who have had um, two doses of vaccine that are not effective, yeah, you know, not fully effective because they haven't reached a level of immunity that's required to protect them, then it's incumbent on us as a nation to protect our people by giving them a third dose. So I think, um, you know, it's almost like you're wasting the first two doses of the vaccine if they're not working effectively by not giving the third. So I do think we do need to vaccinate the, 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 age, the older age groups over 60 and the people who got the, um, you know, the, the less effective vaccines, the, the Johnson Johnson, the AstraZeneca, the younger people, the healthcare workers in particular. So I think that you'll see that's going to come okay. in the next few weeks. There's been reluctance, I suppose, uh, to initially do it, but I think now it will we'll decide to do that over the coming okay. weeks. Here's, here's one quick one coming on the phone, Professor Lastly, Can you clarify, if close contact must still isolate, or do you just wait for your antigen test results to tell you uh, if the clo- yeah, the close contact still has to isolate. I mean, if, if the close contact is is vaccinated, then they do the antigen test. If the close co- contact is not vaccinated, they have to do the, the PCR test. And they have to wait until they have a negative test, either by, by PCR antigen, before they could stop isolating. Okay. Okay. All right. Leave it there. Uh, once again, uh, thank you for being with us on The Opinion. I'm Professor Kingston Mills from Trinity College, Professor of Experimental Immunology. Uh, thank you, Kingston. 1850 so, so from today, if you are a close contact and you are fully vaccinated, you'll get five antigen tests in the post. You're to take one of them today, say one of them in two days' time, one of them two days after that. 
If any of them turn up positive, you must immediately book a PCR. The HSE instruction on restricting your movements, to the best of my understanding, and Fergal will pull me up very quickly if I'm off the mark here, if you are fully vaccinated and you are at close contact, you may continue to go about your business. I believe that to be true. Uh, You'll get the rapid antigen tests in the post. You take one, you take two, you take three. If any of them turn up positive, then you go for a PCR to confirm. And obviously, if any of them come up positive, you would be restricting your movements. 1850-715-996. We thought we were rid of this damn thing. Uh, But unfortunately, it's with us for a little while to come. That new survey or that new study published in The Lancet, which I brought up there with the professor, we are going to speak on Monday or Tuesday to one of the leading authors of that report, which which isn't as scary or as frightening or as dark, as it were, as has been reported in some of the newspapers. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, remember later on because of the weekend that's in it. Talking to a real live Irish witch. Yes, they do. They do exist. Some of them are on TikTok. Huge followings on TikTok. Where else would they be on TikTok? Talking to a real live Irish witch a little bit later on this morning. And also between 11 and 12, another opportunity to win the new Ed Sheeran album and tickets to see him in Cork next April. That is between 11 and 12. It was about the middle or end of September 2020 when we first discussed long COVID on the opinion line. It was appearing sort of as a a question rather than a phenomenon. Was it possible for people to be sick for weeks and weeks and then months and months and take ages to recover from what initially was a a fairly mild dose of COVID-19? And I remember the first interview we did was with a woman on a support group in Scotland. And within days, we were inundated between messages and emails and texts and WhatsApps and calls even from people similarly affected with what has now become known as the genuine phenomenon of long COVID, a genuine phenomenon recognised by the World Health Organisation. There is fascinating research being done in Cork at the moment, up in UCC, into the causes of long COVID and why some people get it and some people don't and how you might know whether you're likely to get it and how you might prevent getting long COVID. What the difference between two patients that one gets long COVID and one doesn't get long COVID and that's being conducted at UCC at the moment and we hope that the results of that will be known or at least the initial results of that research will be known very, very soon. One of the people taking part in it is Tanya Buwalda from Crosshaven, who first got COVID-19 very, very early on in the pandemic and is still, although she's a lot better than she was, is still very ill from time to time to this day. 
I've been talking to Tanya. Tanya, you got COVID, I think, very early on. You weren't in Ireland at the time. You got it. And did you did you put it over you quick enough? I thought I was one of the lucky ones, to be honest. I got it early, but I got it mildly. And I thought, wow, I escaped that kind of um, dodge that bullet almost, if you will. We were at locked down at the time, uh, just like everybody around the world, pretty much. Uh, we weren't outside the door and I felt off. I felt tired. I felt weak. I got a little bit breathless, didn't have any temperature, didn't have any cough. And I lost my sense of taste and smell for mm-hmm. one day, just one day. And I thought, that's really odd. And literally the next morning, my mom sent me a text saying, oh, they've just put this symptom on the list for WHO as a symptom of COVID. And I went, I think I've had it. (laughs) And that was it. No temperature, no cough, none of the typical symptoms that were there at the time. Did you get tested at any stage? Yeah, we uh, in where we were, everybody was it was they were doing ma- pretty much mass testing, and they were checking on people kind of almost like on a door to door basis. So where were you? Yeah, I was in Cuba at the time. Oh, I see. So um, they had a very very strong public health uh, control policy, and I got it. My husband got it. Um, my two kids got it, but was very 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 mild, and so we were very thankful that we came out the other side, and that we were all intense purposes healthy and then things started to go downhill and get complicated about six weeks after I was infected. Right so you were fine in between and then? I I mean I was fine in inverted commas I was stressed out because kids were at home you know homeschooling trying to keep them entertained trying to to figure out what you were going to do my whole career had just been put on hold I had worked in in the travel industry the border was closed so there was a lot of stress around that time but you kind of I was tired and not sleeping well but that could have been for any number of reasons not necessarily just the beginning of long COVID but it was six weeks later that I started to really notice that I was getting out of breath very very easily walking up a flight of stairs I would have to stop and catch my breath and catch my breath like you know a very very elderly person Mm. (laughs) um and and I thought there's something not quite right but I couldn't figure out what was going on and it just progressed and a whole heap of symptoms just rained in one on top of another. And eventually I started thinking this may have something to do with COVID. And, and I didn't I didn't know why I thought that because I had no evidence and certainly nobody was talking about long COVID at that point. But I had trained once a long, long time ago in science and I always go back to the data. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I started searching and Googling and in this case, Dr. Google and was very informative and the WHO were initially talking about some persistent symptoms and I was going, hmm, have some of them, have actually nearly all of them. And then I found a online group out of New York, um, which now has... I think upwards of 70,000 members who started calling it long COVID. And from there, um, I started kind of delving more and more into it. And then by that stage, I was six months post-infection. And at that stage, they had to come out with the long COVID, um, at least at the WHO level, kind of um, talking about it and and what symptoms could be associated with it. But it took another while longer. It took probably until about October last year. So that was from March until October till I actually saw a doctor who said, yeah, no, you have long COVID. 
how bad did it get? Um, we, we moved, we moved, we did a relocation in the middle of the pandemic. Great fun. <laughs> um, and I came home and I was very sick. I was bed bound. I would only be able to get up out of the bed to bring the kids to school. And I would come back to the bed and I would sleep until they finished school, go down and collect them and go back to bed again. Um, when I got out of bed, I would have dizzy spells, um, fall over often. If I did any sudden movements going from sitting to standing or lying down to sitting, I would have almost blackouts, um, tachycardia and kind of palpitations mm. just out of nowhere. Um, lack of lack of oxygen. I bought myself an O2 um, oxygen meter and you don't realize really how low your oxygen stats are sometimes. But at this level, we've been speaking for what, three minutes or something. Mm. At this point, October last year, I would be out of breath and unable to speak anymore. Um, it was that bad. My oxygen would regularly dip down into the 80s, which they tell you if it goes if it goes below, I think it's 90, you should be calling the doctor. If it goes below 80, you should be in hospital. And that would help happen on a regular basis. I wasn't getting enough oxygen into, into my body. Had you any concept of how long this might go on for? None. That was the scariest bit. That was the absolute scariest bit is that you don't know how long it's going to last. And that unknown causes unbelievable amounts of stress. Which adds to the problem. Correct. Because stress just inflames your body and creates a whole vicious uh, feedback loop of stress, inflammation mm. and continued symptoms. Um, it's, it's maybe now, uh, you know, a year and a half later that perhaps I can have a little bit more perspective or people who are infected now with COVID who will go on to develop long COVID can have a little bit more of a perspective. Mm. I mean, I'm 19 months past, I think, post-infection. I'm not 100%. But I'd say maybe I'm 80%. Yeah, I, was about to, I was about to ask you how you are now compared to how you would have been, say, this time last year. Yeah. Um, it's also tricky because you have to adjust your lifestyle in order to be able to just survive with long COVID. So whereas before I was a pretty high octane type doing a lot of things in one day, now, you know, doing one thing in a day is all I will plan. Like if I have to do the shopping, that's it. <laughs> mm. If I have a long day at work, there is nothing else that gets done. No, I cannot cook the dinner. I cannot bath the kids. So I've had to adjust my lifestyle to be able to keep my energy kind of, they, mm. they talk about it in terms of spoons. Um, you have a certain amount of energy at the beginning of the day, a certain amount of spoons, and when it's gone, it's gone. And you need to be very careful and, and be careful of your energy and, and take care of it. So you have to learn to adapt, unfortunately. There's an old friend of mine who has long COVID and said to me that there are days when I put the foot on the floor out of the bed and I realise the other foot is not coming out mm -hmm. and I have no choice in the matter. I get back into bed and sometime later in the day, my body will give me permission to get up. You can identify with that. Oh, 100%. 100%. It's, you know, you make plans with friends. You know, things are beginning to open up. You might go for a, a, a coffee. 
but you don't know if you're going to make that coffee or not. You don't know if you're going to have to be cancelling it. I think now what I do is I just say, look, plan, lads, and I'll tell you on the day if I'm able to make it or not. Oh, so it still happens to you, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it still does. Yeah. And, and you can't always predict it. I mean, usually after a lot of um, physical activity, they call it post-exertional malaise, PEM. So after you've done a lot of physical activity, and I'm not talking about climbing mountains or marathons here, Mm. I'm talking about a normal day of a little bit of driving to work, coming home from work, maybe cooking a meal, and the next day you're paying for it. And by paying for it, Tanya, like what do you mean? Describe what that's like. Complete and utter exhaustion, just fatigue, that go, seeps into your bones, that you just don't have the energy in your body or mentally either. Um, you know, brain fog comes with the territory of, of exhaustion and fatigue and forgetting things and, you know, taking the milk out of the fridge and putting it into the cupboard or going to make a cup of tea and 20 minutes later realizing that you've made a soup for some random reason instead of a cup of tea, you know, th- things like that. Um, it's the fatigue is overwhelming and it's it's difficult to explain or express it to other people because you don't outwardly have anything wrong with you. You know, you don't walk with a walking stick. You're not in a wheelchair. You don't have an obvious disfigurement. It's a, it's a hidden illness in many ways. Mm. And it's difficult for people to understand that level of fatigue because most people, thankfully, will never experience it. Mm. It has a terrible effect on family life. I mean, mm. last Christmas, I think, was a bit of a write-off. No, oh, total write-off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, Let, tell me when dinner is ready. I'll, I'll make a huge effort and get up um, for, for dinner and then go straight back to bed again. Um, it's uh, thankfully now I would be able to, to do a lot more, but it's taken a long, long time to get to this point. And there's many people that are still like I was last December and that's a year later they're still in that situation and they haven't improved at the rate that I have again each person is individual and depending on what support and treatments they're getting the faster or slower they might progress along their their long COVID journey and the reality is that we don't really really know Hmm. what causes long COVID yet we're getting very close to knowing that and there, when we do know what causes it, then we'll probably understand better how to treat it. Mm. But for now, the kind of big, broad things that, that the medical profession um, will tell you is to rest absolutely as much as you can. Mm. Take care of your general health. And I mean, how many of us are burning the candles at both ends you know I'm, when I got sick I was you know working 50 60 hours at least um, a week on a regular basis you know two young kids trying to have a bit of a social life uh, do a whole load of other things in between exercise and you just you your, your body was probably exhausted before you even got sick. Mm. Now Tanya you, you and I know each other since the 90s I remember working with you down at the old Cork Week in Cross Haven That's you right. were always a ball of energy <laughs> You were always yeah. on the go. That's not yeah. that. That's just not possible anymore. No, no. And for someone like me, I mean, you, I can't even believe you remember that. But for someone like me, who's used to being on all the time and very busy and very active, the mental toll yeah. that it takes having to come down a gear or twenty is very, very, very tough.
very tough. Yeah. You told me that your background is in science. Was that Mm -hmm. what prompted you to get involved with the research at UCC? Um, Yes. I mean, I, I was in a couple of support groups online. A couple international ones, a very big one on Slack out of New York, 70,000 plus people. A lot of them are medical professionals who got sick in the early waves of COVID and so are, are, you know, specialists almost in in the field of COVID and long COVID, as well as being sufferers themselves. And then I got involved in in groups in Ireland, support groups, which are fantastic um, source of support. And I kept on asking questions that I thought were very simple, things like how many people have long COVID in Ireland? You know, do we have diagnostic guidelines? Where can I go to download um, key information and data? And and people were coming back saying, no, nope, that doesn't exist. That isn't available. And I was like, that's, that's really strange. But they have these kind of things in the UK and they have it in the US. And why don't we have it here? And I just was curious. And then I realized that actually we didn't have that data. So a chance conversation um, with Professor Liam O'Mani in, in UCC at the um, APC microbiome, we were talking about long COVID, it came up in a, in a conversation and he said, yeah, the, we don't have data about that. And I went, don't you think we should do something about that? And him being a scientist, of course, got really excited very fast. And he was doing and is about to publish a very key piece of research around COVID um, and their analysis um, that they did at the time, at the beginning of the, the pandemic. And they followed a number of patients from infection to, to post-infection and, and see how they've been going. But we didn't have the number of community infections. So they, those studies, most of the information we have in Ireland is based on people who are hospitalized, people who are very sick on respirators, intensive care. But like me, there's thousands, if maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who had mild symptoms. At the time in Ireland, you often didn't meet the diagnostic criteria for getting a PCR test. So you didn't even have a, a positive test and you had COVID at home and you struggled on with a bit of paracetamol and a bit of bed rest and chicken soup, you know? Um, and so that's why I said, well, if the, if the data isn't there, how in the name of God can we provide services and treatment plans for, for the amount of long COVID people there are? And that's why I got involved primarily. Um, it's an unusual enough situation that a patient is helping to drive medical research. That's not usually the norm in medical research. Usually it comes kind of from the top down. But in this instance, and with COVID and the pandemic in general, the information and the way that studies are being developed is very much driven by patient experience. So I think maybe that might be a good thing coming out of it, that in the future, patients might be more involved, uh, which is no harm, it can only cause good in terms of designing research and and doing appropriate types of research. On the opinion line, we first began to talk about long COVID September 2020. I spoke to a woman in Scotland. And I'd say within an hour of that call, we'd had two or three calls from people. There are so many people out there with varying degrees of it. And last week on the programme, I was talking to Dr. Nabarro from the World Health Organisation. And he said, we probably won't know the full extent of how bad this is until COVID itself is on the wane. Mm-hmm. That's, that's probably true, because right now every medical system around the world is firefighting. And we're dealing with the immediate urgency and the immediate pandemic. But this is a whole pandemic in itself, um, waiting in the wings or, or a silent epidemic that's sitting there. 
and PJ, a lot of people might not know they have long COVID. The research is pointing to the fact that somewhere between, and studies vary by country and there's no kind of clear cut number, but somewhere between 10 and 40% of all people who get infected by COVID go on to develop some version of long COVID. That could be a mild or severe case of long COVID. So that means you could have a tiny little sniffle, no cough, no temperature, feel fine after four days, uh, go back to life and then be hit by long COVID. You could be a marathon runner. And I know people who are extreme sports enthusiasts, who are professional sports people who've been hit by long COVID. It doesn't um, distinguish between gender. It doesn't distinguish between your fitness level. There are some indicators that it has something to do with your general state of health at the time that you got sick, but there's no conclusive evidence yet. So the best, I mean, the best guess we, we have is that if you take all of the COVID infections in Ireland, you could be looking at about 40% of that cohort of people who have long COVID. That's a pretty serious 40 number of people. Percent. It could be, yeah. Wow. That, that's varying degrees of long COVID, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the symptoms are so variable, a bit like COVID itself, uh, the infection, although long COVID symptoms are, there's now I think been documented well over 100 symptoms of long COVID. So for one person, they could have ongoing headaches and tiredness. For someone else, they could have gastro problems and have constant diarrhea um, all the time. And they would be going to see their doctor and the doctors would be looking at symptoms and we'd be saying, you know, I'll refer you to gastroenterologist consultant somewhere. You'll be way on the waiting list for a year for that. Meanwhile, you're getting sicker the whole time, potentially. So it's difficult enough to diagnose, um, let alone treat. So people, I think, could do well with being a little bit more aware of the general symptoms of long COVID mm. to maybe join up some dots themselves and kind of, if they have maybe six or 10 of the hundred symptoms and, and, and did have an infection of COVID to go to their primary healthcare doctor and say, look, is there any chance this could be long COVID and try and get a referral to, to see a, a specialist on it. Mm. How does it make you feel when people still, Tanya, dismiss COVID as, ah, it's only a cold, it's only a bit of an old flu, get over yourself. And they're out there, many of them. There are. Um, luckily, luckily, I don't have people like that in my circle, but I, I have read the stories and certainly people in our support groups, they have families, some of them even have spouses who who uh, poo-poo the idea that, you know, COVID is anything serious and even long COVID doesn't exist. In fact, some doctors denied long COVID even existed initially. I think that's significantly changed now. Um, it's difficult. I mean, the lived experience of someone gives you, of course, a, a position of authority and you're able to speak from, from a place of knowledge. I had a very mild infection by all accounts compared to some of my friends and who had more serious um, COVID illness. But yet I've spent 19 months of my life suffering from long COVID and, and it's life limiting. It's day to day for you now. It is. It is. You, you don't know. We're having a conversation here. You're in good form. You don't know tomorrow. Could you have this conversation? I don't. No, I don't. 
And I probably after this conversation will not be able to talk much for the rest of the day, which my family might say is no harm. <laughs> but um, but wow. my oxygen will be quite low after speaking for, for a while, yes. Well, I won't keep you too long more except <laughs> as, do you ever worry, Tanya, that this might, I mean, you're in your 40s. Do you ever yeah. worry that this this is it, that you won't get back to 100% fitness? Interestingly, I don't actually. Um, probably because I've been reading a lot of science and I've been speaking to to a lot of scientists and, and I take part in a couple of studies globally as well on long COVID. The, the information that we do know, and that's, again, every day, every month, we learn more and more about this um, pandemic and also about long COVID, that time is a great healer. Um, if you give your body the right conditions to be able to heal, then it will heal better. And I think when I made that discovery for myself, things started to improve significantly. Do you know who told, who who, gave, who said a, told me a little story? And he was absolutely right. Again, Prof Liam, um, I'm a big fan. Mm. He makes science very accessible. Um, he said, you know, years ago there were sanatoriums. Um, there was a couple in Cork. Uh, he mm. specifically was at a couple in in Switzerland in the summer doing some some research, and people used to take off for three, six, nine, sometimes twelve months at a time post some illness in order to recover. And it'd be a lot of fresh air and good food and rest. Who, who in this modern life has the time to do that? Who, or the resources, mm. or the money? And that's actually probably most of what we need is time off from life, good nutrition, total rest and time out so that your body can help itself to heal. But the more you put your body under pressure to get up every day to go to work or to take care of whatever other duties you have, that's prevent that's taking that energy away from the healing activity. So um, I think when the penny dropped, when that penny dropped for me, I went, you know what, if I actually invest the time more than money, but the time into giving myself the right conditions to rest and recuperate, then I'm going to get better. And now, as I said, I'm probably about 80 percent. Um, and that's due to mainly to that, to giving myself the right time and to giving myself the right conditions in terms of nutrition and health and in, increasing everything in my life to, to, to make me more healthy. And you need support to that and you get it. I'm very lucky. I recognise that I'm very lucky. I have quite the new man at home who's a better cook and housekeeper than I am <laughs> and who doesn't mind doing it. Um, and does it differently and that's fine but he's he's had to take on the lion's share of all of that along with his own work um in order to be able to let me rest and recuperate and hopefully um you know that 80 percent that i'm at now will be 100 percent in in the not too distant future and i'll be able to repay the favor to him <laughs> well tanya i wish you well with getting that extra 20 percent back and thanks for being with me today and speaking so openly on the opinion line no problems i think there's a lot of value for people to hear someone's story and let them know that it's okay to go ask for help and to advocate for yourself that's something i've had to learn through this journey is if you think you might if you suspect you might have long COVID, go to your gp don't let them fab you off get lots and lots of tests done and get referred to one of the long COVID clinics so that you can get the treatment because although it might take a while to be seen by someone 
just knowing that you're on a waiting list sometimes it gives a little bit of a psychological boost that something is going to be done you know there's also some great um pj would be really good to mention some of the support groups because i think people find them very very useful um on facebook um long covid ireland support group if anybody is um needing support we're all long covid sufferers in there um and it's an amazing bunch of people if you ever need a little bit of of help and a pick me up and a bit of gallows humor <laughs> at times <laughs> tanya good luck to you thanks thanks a million that's uh, tanya bewilder can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Your next chance to win the new Ed Sheeran album equals and tickets to see him in Cork next April. That's between 11 and 12 today. Free tickets to see Ed and free copies of his new album all day today and tomorrow on Cork's 96FM. Reminder as well, I said it at the very top of the programme and I almost didn't believe it when I looked at the calendar this morning. Eight weeks today is Christmas Eve. Yes, it is. And every year in Cork, thousands of you get together to help fight homelessness with Cork Simon by wearing a Christmas jumper to raise vital funds. And this year, Cork's 96FM, along with Cork Simon, is asking you to host your Christmas jumper day wherever you feel safest doing so. Do it in the office. If you're in the office, do it at home. Do it online. Do it on Zoom with your friends, your colleagues, or even with family overseas. Get a fundraising pack at CorkSimon.ie and join Cork's 96FM as we help to fight homelessness in Cork. Yeah, eight weeks today, Christmas Eve. But before we deal with Christmas and begin the countdown to Christmas, which started roughly at the end of August in the, some of the shops. And you know what? Great to see it. We'll talk about Halloween first. And what has emerged as a new breed of Irish, which... There is such a thing. I'll talk to one in just a second. But a new survey by Aldi to coincide with Halloween has also found that Cork is the spookiest country in Munster with more than 600 haunted places. Now, I don't know if you know any of them. The third highest number in the country. Where is the spookiest place you have been in all of Cork? Where's the place you wouldn't go to after dark? Now, don't be telling me now about places in the city centre you wouldn't go to after dark. There's places in the city centre I wouldn't go to in the bright day. Do you know what I mean now? <laughs> Where would you not go after dark? Because you'd be... you get the willies. you get the spookies. I do know of one. I used to... I'm not a... Uh, I'm not a big believer in ghosts and goblins and things that go bump in the night, but the new graveyard... On the back road between Carrigaline and Douglas. I think they call it the Ballon Ray Cemetery. I would no more park outside that or drive, even I'd be nervous driving past that dark at night. 
I, I just find it anywhere around a graveyard. I, I wouldn't like to be at night. It's just a thing. Just a thing. I'm not a fan of graveyards anywhere who is, but certainly not at night. If you have a place in Cork City or County that you um that you wouldn't go after dark because you'd feel the chills, uh, let me know. Let me know at 1850-715-996. But witches, I remember we used to talk to Helen in Cove years ago on the programme. Uh, she was uh, known as the White Witch of Cove. I haven't heard from Helen in many, many a long day now. But witchcraft is a huge thing now, where of all places, only on TikTok. And one of the new uh, group or the new breed of Irish witches is Jessica Vaughan, who is based in Limerick and joins me now. Hi, Jessica. Hi, how are you? Good to speak with you. Uh, first of all, what, what is witchcraft and, and what got you into it? Um, well, I suppose, obviously, people's perception of witchcraft is going to be sitting down with candles and cauldrons and doing a lot of mad stuff. But there is a massive, like, religious aspect to it. <clears throat> um, of course, you can get, like, atheist witches and things like that. But usually a witch will have her own gods and goddesses. And then, of course, like, doing spell work and things like that is just to kind of create certain experiences or changes and things that you want to happen in your life. Now... Is the ancient religion is or faith is that Wicca as we used to call it? Um, no, Wicca was only invented in the nineteen fifties. It probably was around for a little bit before that, because witchcraft was only outlawed in the mid twentieth century. But Wicca wouldn't be an ancient religion. Wicca would draw on aspects of different ancient cultures. I specifically tried to stick to Irish Celtic witchcraft. Um, obviously, it's quite hard to do so, given that they didn't write anything down. And all of the texts that we have were written down by Christian monks, mm. some of whom were great at what they were writing and others who were extremely biased against the religion that came before them. Um, but no, Wicca would be a little bit similar to Irish witchcraft and it would use like quite a few of our like rituals and our holidays but it's not the ancient yeah. religion when did you it's quite a newer only, version you're only in your 20s to 23 you are when did yeah. you first get interested in this was there a story about some strange a strange experience with crystals <laughs> yeah that was I probably, probably about eight or nine and my mom has had been going through a little like spiritual phase and she brought home these crystals and I could feel them and like I could feel the energy going through them and they were vibrating and I was getting like shocked. How do you mean now? You could pick them up in your um, hand and you could yeah, feel no, I had a few Yeah. Um but my great grandmother was a white witch as well. So I think I just inherited a little bit of it, a bit of the madness. Mm. Tell me about her. Uh, she was a palm reader mostly. That was her favorite to do. Um, she read tea leaves. She read cards. Um, she was actually a very, very Catholic woman, despite the fact she was a witch. Mm. Um, but Irish witchcraft does that a lot. It usually would be a syncretic blend between Christianity and pagan like rituals and rites. <clears throat> Because, like, if we look even at Ireland today, we still celebrate Bonfire Night on the 1st of May, which has it linked back to the Celtic Festival of Bialdana, Yeah. which is what our name for May is anyway. Um, but, yeah, the pagan festivals and rituals had to become a Christian version of what they once were to be acceptable in the Ireland that it turned into. Mm. 
so you will get that a lot where things will have a catholic touch onto them or the catholic rituals will have a pagan touch onto them like the way Bridget was originally an sure. Irish goddess and then she became a saint. Yeah. So your what are your if you like core beliefs in terms of witchcraft will Jessica it's a very nature based pursuit for you isn't it? Yeah. So I make sure to spend a lot of time in nature and really ground myself um Irish witchcraft is very big on to like giving back to your community and doing things for the world around you. Um, it's very, very like environmentalist as well. It does talk a lot about how we have to protect the green world and how we owe it to the green world to respect it. Um, I think in our modern day and age, we're very like dissociated from the natural world and separated from it. We consider ourselves to be above nature and away from it. But my witchcraft practice seeks to get me to reconnect to the natural world again and live in harmony with the cycles of what's going on around me. Okay. Talk to me about spells, Jessica. Do you do spells? <laughs> um, yeah, spells. This is funny because, like, obviously it does have all that kind of, like, woo-woo, like, fanciful stuff around it. But, like, science is actually starting to catch up on this now in terms of quantum physics and knowing that you actually can change energy, that everything is made up of energy. Actually change what that energy functions as. Um, which is what witchcraft does. But you would pick the energy of like certain tools or certain plants, certain flowers that match up with the thing that you're trying to create or manifest. The law of attraction does play into this. And I know like the law of attraction and manifesting has gone very, very mainstream, mm. which personally I consider to just be a very watered down version of witchcraft myself. But that is debatable, I think. Yeah. Um. But yeah, spells would just be you have an intention that you want to happen i would communicate with my spirit guides and my gods and ask is this something that can happen is this something that's for me do you agree with this and if they give the go ahead then we'll do it and that thing will come into fruition at some point or another yeah your your spirit guides so who are they like who are your spirit guides who guides you your in your in your witchcraft so Every single witch is going to be different. Most witches will always work with their ancestors anyway. I tend to only work with the ancestors that I actually inherited the witchcraft from. Right. Um, and then you'd usually have some sort of gods, goddesses. Some people still work with angels. Some people work with saints. It just depends on who they feel called to, who they're like connected to on a soul level. And what kind of a spell would you do? Like if someone said to you, and I don't wish to trivialize, but if someone said to you, Jessica, I have my my driving test coming up and I'm deadly nervous about it. Like, can you help them with that? Or is that what spells are yeah. for? Well, like if they're really, really nervous, you're going to want to counteract that by doing something to ground them in order to like just get their feet on the ground and have them concentrated on what they're doing. You can send them good luck. You can send them concentration. You're going to just pick things like a, a color that you will associate with grounding or a color that you'd associate with good luck and then you'd use the plants and herbs and things and you dress the candle with that or you put them in a little pot or you give them a spray or an oil okay. with the ingredients in it. So you'd burn and you burn herbs like Yeah. At your at an altar. Yeah. Okay. And what herbs do you use? I mean are they stuff that's do you 
do you have to go out and find them or do you grow them or are there, are there herbs I would know? I think it's really, really beneficial to use the things that are local to you. Like I have some random flowers in my garden and I have like thorns and things like that and I'll use them. But I do have just a little like kit of herbs. You can just order those online as well. So they do come in handy. Um, but like probably my favorite ones to use would be rosemary because that's really good for like cleansing. Um, I love rose petals in general. Just the rose. I love getting a bunch of roses, drying them out, using the petals for like a bath or something like that, and then actually like burning the stems. Um, smoke cleansing is something that you might have heard of. People will call it smudging. Um, a lot of people will use white sage for that. I don't use white sage because it's an endangered plant and because I'm practicing Irish witchcraft, which is very big on the environment and protecting that, it wouldn't match up with my spiritual beliefs to use a plant that is endangered. Sure. Um, so I try to use other things for that. But yeah, I really like rosemary, rose petals, cinnamon. Um, and then all those things have different purposes. Dragon's blood is really, really nice as well. So smoke cleansing is to like clear the energy in the air around you. Right. So you can do that for yourself, a person, your actual home and your space and everything. So how, how do your friends and your family feel about all this? When you tell them that this is what I don't you do? think they feel any type of way. Sometimes they'll ask me to do readings and stuff for them. But yeah, they're very accepting. I think my dad thinks I'm a little bit mad because he's an atheist anyway. But <laughs> that's really nothing to me. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose... The obvious question that people want me to ask you is, how do you mark Halloween? <laughs> um, so Halloween, obviously we practice it as Samhain. Yes. So there Samhain you go. Actually, before you answer what I just asked you, yeah. just Halloween, I often talk about the way that the Americans have captured it and turned it into some kind of a strange festival. Tell people about the origins of what we now call Halloween. It was much nicer. Mm -hmm. We used to call it Samhain. Yes. So Halloween, the way we know it today happened when all the Irish people emigrated to the States and the American market saw Samhain and said, how can we capitalise off of this? But originally Samhain is actually a festival going back like 4,000, even more, maybe years to ancient Celtic Ireland. Um, and it is a festival to honour death and the dead. Those have passed, those that are going to pass, because this was a time we were coming into winter and it was likely that not everybody was going to make it to spring. Mm. Um, it's a, a festival that's highly associated with the goddess, the Morrigan as well, who is known as the goddess of death. Um, there's lots of different things from Samhain, even from thousands, hundreds of years ago, that still are present today. Like the concept of dressing up in costumes actually originated as a tradition that you would don your costume because the veil is thinning. And the veil is what separates the physical world from the other world, which is the spiritual world. Mm. And so all of these entities and beings would be able to communicate easier and they'd be able to cross over to the physical physical world easier. And some of those beings may wish to do you harm. The belief about the other world in Irish witchcraft is that it's a mirror to our world. And just as there is good and bad in this world, so too is there good and bad in the other world. So, of course, there that means that there is beings that wish to harm you just as there's beings that would wish to harm you in this world, too. Mm. So you put on your costume to confuse those entities so that they don't think that you're human, so that they don't try to do anything to you or mess with you. Mm. So that's the origin of the costumes. Yeah. And then the whole origin of the pumpkins. Obviously, pumpkins were not native to Ireland. 
So it was originally that you'd carved it on a turnip or something. Yeah. And much more creepy looking than the classic pumpkin that we know. But yeah, that was done as a protective measure as well. It's also um, an old tradition to leave an extra place setting and a plate of dinner out for people. People being the benevolent spirits that you wouldn't want to offend by not giving them anything and showing them hospitality. Okay. So how will you, what will you do? Is there anything specific you will do on Halloween in your in your room, in your space where you have your altar? Is there anything you will do to mark the occasion? Yeah, well, I actually... Yeah, I won't actually be doing it in that room. I try to do all of like my rituals and stuff for the big holidays outdoors as long as the weather allows it. So I will actually be spending Samhain in my ancestors' graveyards um, where they're all buried and I'll do rituals with them and I'll give them offerings up there. Hmm. But yeah, Irish witchcraft rituals will incorporate the four elements. So you have something to represent air, water, earth and fire and you lay them out and you get in tune to the energy that the natural world is giving you right now and you'll thank the sun for everything that it's doing and has done. And Samhain is often labelled as the Celtic New Year and that is debated a bit within witchy circles. Yes. Um, but it's basically down to the belief that the Celts believe that the the new day began when the sun set the evening before, not when it rose again in the morning. So that reflects the winter would be the dark period of the year and that would be the start of the year. So I think that's where that belief okay. came to okay. be. Okay. You are a mine of information and thank you very much for being with us. And uh, I hope that whatever you do to mark Halloween with your ancestors in that graveyard goes well for you. Um, Irish witch from Limerick, Jessica Vaughan. Uh, thanks, Jessica, for being with us on the Opinion Line. If you want to find out more, there's loads of it on TikTok. Hash, hashtag witch talk. Just go into TikTok and look for witchcraft or hashtag Witch talk. There's loads of it there. And there's loads of Irish people doing it. 1850-715-996. See, that's the kind of Halloween now that I'd like. That kind of traditional stuff. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. There's a greyhound. If you've lost a black and white greyhound, out the straight road, out towards Carrigrand Castle there. Uh, that greyhound has been spotted at just about 10 o'clock. If you've lost a greyhound, uh, you can see it from the road. That's that, that's that big castle as you go out the end of the straight road there, heading out towards the Angler's Rest. You look up, that, that yeah, the, the, the greyhound has been seen out around there in the last half an hour if you happen to be missing a greyhound. There's another place people would find a bit spooky in the dead of night is out around that castle or any other abandoned building like St. Kevin's Hospital. If the walls could talk, the stories they'd tell. Ella remembers being taken on a school tour to Cork Jail. Couldn't sleep for weeks afterwards. The vibe really terrified her. Caller says the Franciscan well can't have a peaceful point in there and get the spookies in there. 
and Anne hasn't her or hasn't been there but the story Oh, the white lady on Three Castle Head. Yes, yes, yes. I'd never visit there, she says. What, by day or by night, Anne? Anywhere you think is a bit spooky to be going. 1850 or text to WhatsApp 83 396 If you've a bit of a story about anywhere where you got the spooks as well, pop it into a voice message 83 Of course, the makeup for Halloween. We've come a long way from a bit of flour on your face or anything like that. It's it's big business now and the makeup artists of Ireland have a busy weekend. One of them's Jessica Daly. Hi, Jessica. Good morning. Hi, PJ. How are you? Good. Busy weekend for someone like yourself. Halloween's a big project now. Massive, yeah. It's massive this time of year. What sort of stuff do you do for for, for Halloween? Well, for Halloween, you can go anywhere, to be honest. You can go all down the SFX or the special effects route and you can be drawn cuts and bruises on your face or you can go through the traditional uh, place with face paint and you can make yourself into like a skeleton or anything like that. You can go either way. There must be hours of work in it, isn't there? Oh, hours, yeah. Depending on what you're doing. Like, you have to be ke- or careful what you're doing and you could be a long time doing something or a short time doing something, depending mm. on where you're going. Would you use luminous materials or stuff? Um, well, to be honest, I kind of work with what I have. Um, you can go down the route of using what you already have or you could spend a fortune. But you don't need to spend a fortune, especially only for Halloween makeup if you're only using it once a year. Yeah. Um, I find my biggest top tip is using a wet brush, um, an eyeshadow brush, not a floor brush, um, and dipping it into eyeshadow and you face paint in the click of a finger. Yeah, because the kids are all competing now to be the best and have the most scary face going out for the trick-or-treating oh, yeah. at the weekend. So for, for moms and dads who are tearing their hairs out at the thought of what they're going to be able to do, any quick tips? Um, Like I said, if you have eyeshadow, it's your best friend. Um, one thing I've actually found works great for kids, especially for getting something done quickly, is you know the nets you buy when you're buying a packet of oranges or apples or whatever they come in. Yeah, yeah. If you use that, if you use that as a stencil up against their face, and get a green eyeshadow or whatever you have, and use that as a stencil with a brush and pat it on, and you can instantly make it look like scales and a bit of red lipstick and put a bit of red to their eyebrows and boom, they're a mermaid. Um, or they can be a scary lizard or something like that and it literally takes about five minutes um, another thing that I'm seeing popping up an awful lot is actually using do you know your toilet roll Um, you scrunch it up and you dip that into eyeshadow and like I saw a picture online last night and someone went to the unicorn to a school party and their parents uh, um, got that toilet roll now and put it in like loads of brightly coloured eyeshadow and just dotted it all around their face Right. and it kind of gave a kind of a, a spotty kind of a look but it looked kind of magical it was cool Um. Mm. so that was a kind of a last minute idea I had by somebody which I thought was brilliant and I suppose you can't go wrong with your vampire makeup with the bit of um, uh, purple eyeshadow under the eyes and yeah. the black lips and the black brows and you know using your eyeliners or even like that getting yeah. a wet face brush and into a bit black eyeshadow right right can you I mean obviously there's uh, things to avoid as well like what's the biggest mistake that people would make um, well, I suppose for children would be using kind of things that might damage their faces or yeah. 
um like things that might stain them and things like I know I've used things on my face like liquid lipstick now and um like I wouldn't have used proper face paints myself if I was doing something properly only on my own like and I'd be there for three days trying to scrub it off so I suppose if my skin can't really take it I poor child would be torn um yeah, yeah. be careful what you're if, using if if the if it's raining and you're going out trick or treating, avoid water activated face paints because the poor child will have nothing on their face when they come home. <laughs> or they're going to look um, even more horrific than when they went out. Yeah, I suppose it could <laughs> work. All that running way. down, it down the face. more scary. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. but the kind of major things to avoid: right. something that might damage their eyes or make them cry, just something got in their tear yeah. duct or. But other than that, can it go crazy? Yeah, exactly. Use your imagination. Have you got a TikTok or, a, or an Insta that people can look at for? Yeah, um, at JDMUA underscore underscore on both TikTok and Instagram. All right. Okay, Jessica, have a good weekend. Enjoy. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. In the lead up to Christmas, John Spillane is back for John Spillane and Friends' annual Christmas concert and also the Everyman Sunday songbook are going to bring us a Rat Pack Christmas. For more details on these and more shows, check out everymantheatre.com. Access all areas. Country Music's brightest star Nathan Carter returns to Cork Opera House with six albums under his belt. Nathan and his band will light up the stage with all the classic hits and the songs that have made him a firm favourite. The show takes place on Thursday, October 28. Access All Areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Courts 96 FM. There's an interesting thing to the rounds on social media uh, to do with Halloween, which I'll read in a little while. But I want to go from the makeup that people might use to the food we might eat. Now, I went out the other day and, as I said, Halloween is not my favourite time of the year. I much prefer Christmas. You won't shut me up about Christmas once this weekend is over. But I do like a bit of brack. And I bought a brack. And I bought, you know, those lovely little nuts that you crunch out of the shell. I bought them because that's what you do at Halloween. But there's probably other food you can do and be a bit more a bit more ambitious. Kate Ryan of Flavor.ie. Hi, Kate. Hi, PJ. Good morning. How are you? Very good. Now I bought a brack. I suppose you'd want me to make one. <laughs> well, there are many good uh, um, products out there. So I think unless you have the time to make them, go ahead and just buy one. That'll do fine. <laughs> <laughs> What is there anything tradition? Obviously, obviously, brack, but anything else traditional that that would cook up over over Halloween? Well, I suppose the foods that really kind of symbolise this time of year are apples, uh, hazelnuts, potatoes, turnips, and things like barley and oats. So, um, pumpkins, I suppose, is quite a modern. Um, mm inclusion in into that kind of repertoire you know and 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 so the kind of uh the history goes that um when when irish uh emigrated over to the u.s they brought the turnips with them because that was uh the original jack-o'-lantern and then on return they brought back pumpkins and that's kind of you know they're obviously they're easier to carve they're sweeter they're you know well nicer tasting depending on your point of view yeah. uh, so they kind of took over so i suppose really now pumpkins are are something that become and squashes are very much a part of the yeah. the seasonal eating for the year i've never eaten so, a, i've ever eaten pumpkin I, i've eaten the seeds uh, where they dry them and salt yeah. them uh, you know they kind of What's, cook they're lovely but pumpkin would you make a soup out of it or what would you make out of a pumpkin yeah i mean pumpkin is uh, it's one of those vegetables that you can treat almost the same as a, a potato in that it's very very versatile um so obviously everyone's busy kind of probably pump, uh, carving out their pumpkins and squashes uh at the moment this weekend ready for halloween on sunday um and I suppose we've spoken about food waste before, but, uh, mm. you know, there's a lot of obviously you want to make use of what is inside and everything that inside is good for you. So, yeah, absolutely. You can take out the seeds, you can clean them, season them and roast them and they're completely edible. Um, they'll look different to the ones that you kind of buy in the shops. The ones you kind of buy in the shops have a green look. Obviously, that's um, inside the kind of kernel of the shell that you get from other pumpkins and squashes, but the whole thing is completely edible. Um, and then the, the, the flesh inside then, um, obviously, everyone knows about pumpkin soup, which is really lovely. The other kind of nut that's uh, seasonal this year is chestnut and pumpkin and chestnut soup together goes really nice. Mm. But it also, pumpkin is great with flavours like sage, rosemary, even chilli and lime. So you can really kind of uh, sort of go to town on yeah. what you can do with soup. You throw it with then, a, a stew or a casserole, could you? Yeah, absolutely. You can pop it in there. It's quite, it's a vegetable that cooks quite quickly. So you'd want to put it in, you know, halfway through the cooking time of a casserole or something like that. But also what I like to do is I just like sort of to chunk it up and sort of season it with garlic and salt and pepper and olive oil, whack it in the oven and roast it very quickly for about 20 minutes. 
and then use that to flavor something like a risotto or a pasta dish mm. and it's great with sort of blue cheese and things like this and then you can add in your hazelnuts as well so you can make it really super seasonal but also as well I don't know whether you've come across Hasselback potatoes yes before. yes um, they're a big yeah, hit in my house can, yes Great. Yeah. So you can hassle back um, a squash as well, particularly uh, butternut squash, which is the one that I suppose we're most familiar with, the sort of bell-shaped, light-coloured, skinned uh, squash. So you just uh, peel it, uh, cut it in half, peel it, scoop out the seeds and then sort of turn it so that the rounded back is facing you and just make the, the sort of very thin slices almost all the way through, but not quite. And then roast it in the oven and just kind of keep basting it with lots of butter, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes very soft and roasted and caramelized on the outside. And that is really gorgeous with, yeah. say, like if you were having your bacon or uh, roast chicken or something this weekend. All right. It's a good food food for thought, as it were. Thank you. Kate Ryan of Flavor.ie, based in West Cork, uh, on what you might do with that leftover pumpkin after you've carved it out. And other ideas for Halloween food. All right. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. I had thought it might take us until Monday to get my next guest on the line, such as the interest in her research, but uh, I'm able to speak with her now. I referred earlier on, talking to Professor Kingston Mills about the new research. According to the examiner, for example, it says people vaccinated against COVID-19 are equally as infectious as the unvaccinated. The study was published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases uh, Journal, and it's, it's used detailed infection data from household transmission. And it says that the peak viral load for both vaccinated and unvaccinated people who are positive is broadly similar. And of course, sceptics are now asking the question, well, why are we bothering with vaccination at all? So I wanted to get deeper behind the headlines, which is what we do on the Opinion Line. And I should say I'm joined by Dr. Annika Singhanayajam from the Imperial College of Medicine, the Department of Infectious Diseases, who's one of the lead authors on this research. Uh, Dr. Singhanayajam, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Go into a little more detail about what this lead finding is, because a lot of cynics are now saying, oh, why are we bothering with vaccinations? But that's not your finding. No, it's not. Um, So what we did, as you said, was we carried out a study in UK households that was quite detailed. Um, And how we did that was um, when there was a case of COVID-19 in the community, we tried to um, recruit the people who had been in close contact with that case, so the people that they were living with um, predominantly. Um, And we carried out detailed investigations. So we asked them to do swabs on themselves for um, up to two weeks. Um, And and that enables us to see how many people um, that case was then going on to infect, um, particularly in a household setting. Um, And what we found was um, that the people in the household who were double vaccinated um, were less likely to get to catch the infection from that case than those who were unvaccinated. but you do you are still susceptible when you're fully vaccinated. So we had one in four um, people in the household 
um, that became infected from that case. And that was compared to 38% or about two in five who are unvaccinated. Um, so the vaccine is doing a job in reducing your risk of catching the infection, um, but it's not completely stopping you from being able to catch the infection, particularly in a household where, you know, people are obviously in very close contact with each other. Mm. Did, um, so did, that was one of our... Did yeah. the findings surprise you at all? Um, I think, that, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of the first finding. And yes, that did surprise us um, because I think that one in four um, chance of getting infected, um, you know, from somebody that you're living is living with um, is still quite high um, despite being vaccinated. And I think um, particularly early on, that did surprise us. And that um, then prompted us to look into, into it in a bit more detail and try to understand um, about what was happening when those vaccinated people were then infected. Um, so that sort of moves on to the second part of the findings. So what we can see is, <coughs> sorry, is that when a vaccinated person becomes infected, even if that's less likely to happen, when it does happen, they are equally able to pass it on to household members as those people who are infected um, that are unvaccinated. Um, and that's supported by our findings that you mentioned about the amount of virus in the nose and throat of vaccinated people who get the infection um, is still very similar to those who are unvaccinated. Mm. And so they are still able to spread it, um, particularly, I mean, we looked really in households where, you know, you're living in close contact with people. Yeah. Six months ago, when, or slightly longer ago, when the vaccines finally began to arrive, you know, people were very hopeful that they'd prevent the infection, that they'd drive the R number way down below one and that for example here in Ireland with huge numbers of the pap of the population now vaccinated we'd have very little to worry about sadly it looks as if that might be uh, is that is that is that gone now i mean is it were um, we wrong in that assumption well i think when the vaccines were rolled out the primary aim of the vaccine is to break the link between um your infection and getting severe illness, so going to hospital or dying from the infection. And that is the primary goal of the vaccine. And that's why they were introduced. And, you know, that fact still remains. So when you have when you have vaccine protection, you are far less likely to get unwell from the infection. And that is the main thing. Um, and, and, and so I think a secondary kind of hope for the vaccination effort was that it would help to drive down um, transmission. Um, we didn't know to what extent that would be. Um, and um, what we can see is that from our, from our, from our research is that um, vaccination is reducing your chance of getting infected, which um, will also contribute to, to reducing transmission. So there are two ways that you can um, reduce transmission. The first is to you know, prevent people getting, getting infected as much. And the second is once you're infected to reduce those people's infectiousness. Um, and so we can still see that the vaccine <coughs> is having some effect at reducing your chance of becoming infected, um, but you still can get infected and you still can spread it. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I guess, particularly, you know, with the Delta variant, which is more um, transmissible, more infectious, um, I think that the case is that the, the, the infection is going to continue to spread yeah. even amongst vaccinated people. Um, however, you know, vaccinated people um, are going to be far less likely to go to hospital. Yeah. 
when the vaccines were being developed, we were dealing with the original, what they now call the wild strain, and then we had alpha and all of that. Did Delta totally change the game, Annika, in terms of it's how, how it deals with <coughs> vaccines or how vaccines deal with it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so Delta, we can see, is more transmissible than alpha, and alpha was more transmissible than pre-alpha. Um, so we can see that, you know, as the virus is um, spending more time infecting more, more people, it's adapting to, you know, wanting to spread more rapidly amongst us. Um, and, you know, we do, we, we do see that, um, we, we do see the effects of that, I think, on the case numbers. Um, and that's, you know, Delta is contributing to the reason why we're seeing more cases. Um, I think, you know, because the vaccine started to be rolled out kind of more towards when Delta emerged in the UK, um, there's not as much information about how effective <coughs> effective the vaccines were at pr protecting against alpha. But it does seem that they were better at protecting from you, protecting you from getting infected with the alpha variant mm. than they are with Delta in comparison. Um, and so Delta definitely has, um, you know, made a difference. Um, but, you know, a lot of the data is around Delta and, you know, that is what we're dealing with now. And so I think, you know, that, that's what we have to go forward with. There's a lot of uh, development still going on in terms of vaccines. They're even talking about second generation vaccines. Is it a realistic hope that one day we'll vary one of the vaccines we have or come up with a new one that, that will do what uh, we originally wanted to do, as in kill yeah. off this thing? Um, I mean, I think... Yeah, I mean, I would still say that the vaccines that we have are, you know, working, still working really well. I mean, mm. they're still remaining very effective at stopping you getting ill. And that's the key thing. Um, you know, it's and, and they are kind of also stopping you from the chance of you getting infected, which is also important. Um, I think that if we're hoping to have a vaccine that will completely um, drive down transmission, um, you know, we know from history, from other infections, that um, it may be that we need a different type of vaccine to do that. So we know from um, flu, which is also another respiratory infection, that, you know, sometimes you need to deliver vaccines directly through the nose and the throat to get more of a, an effect on, mm. um, you know, preventing transmission of infection. And so I wouldn't say that these findings are overly um, unexpected. Yeah. Um, I think we've just got to remember that the key aim of the vaccination drive is to stop people getting unwell. Um, and, you know, sort of as much as they can affect um, reducing transmission is also important. Um, um, but, you know, that's that's kind of a secondary aim of the yeah. effort, I would say. Where, where is the research going next, finally? From what you've now found, where do you take this next? Um, so... <laughs> I mean, we've carried out quite detailed study in these UK households and um, the participants of our study um, did, you know, a lot of intensive work. They did lots of samples for us. Um, and so we're going to hopefully use um, that sort of data set to try to answer some more important questions um, about COVID-19. So um, looking at things like um, when are you most infectious and why? Um, looking at how people's immune responses are developing through the infection and um, hopefully using that kind of information, which is not easy to collect, 
Um, first of all, it takes a lot of you know labor intensive work to to capture all of that information. Um, but um, we're going to keep going forward with that. <laughs> um, use the information we've got to answer some more questions and um, hopefully keep going with the study just in case um, new variants emerge or things change and we can hopefully quite quickly add to the public health response and mm. you know help our understanding and our policymakers to know what to do. How, how important is it lastly uh, doctor for people to understand this is an ongoing learning process and that something we believe today and have science to show us today could have completely changed in a month from now. How important is it to bear that in mind? Oh, it's so important. I mean, with um, with this infection, it's so new that we're only learning every day. Um, you know, there's so much research coming out that things change within weeks, within days. Um, you know, new research is coming out that's adding to our understanding. And also, you know, the, the virus is changing, our populations are changing, what we do is changing. Um, and so, you know, we've got to kind of uh, respond rapidly and, you know, uh, keep 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 on working at un our understanding of the infection. Um, I think that it's going to be a continued learning experience for some time and we've got to do what we can to um, respond to uh, th this this infection. OK, listen, thank you very much for being with us today from the Imperial College of Medicine, Department of Infectious Diseases, and one of the authors of that new research published in The Lancet, uh, Professor Annika Singanayajam. Thank you for being with us on The Opinion Line. 1850-715-996. It's being reported as if there's no point in getting vaccinated, but listen to her. She's saying, yes, the vaccination still keeps you from getting sick. It is very sick. It is still harder to catch this thing if you are vaccinated. A lot harder to catch it if you are vaccinated. Once you caught it, however, the vaccine prevents you from getting really sick. The thing that you got to watch is that this research now tells us that you are as infectious as someone who's unvaccinated should you happen to catch it. Although what Kingston Mills was saying to us earlier this morning was that your infectious period may not be as long. So someone who's unvaccinated could be infectious for days. You might only be infectious for a couple of days. So the really important thing is to continue to get vaccinated. 1850-715-996. More suggestions of haunted places where people will not go. Yeah, well, the story of the White Lady. In, I'll bring you back to that. And St. Kevin's Hospital. A lot of people saying, oh, God, I wouldn't go there by day, let alone by night. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. They're coming up sometime this hour. I will do it for you. In fact, I'll do it for you in the next 20 minutes. A chance to celebrate the release of Ed Sheeran's fifth studio album, Equals giving away copies of the album and free tickets to see Ed live at Parky Creeve 
on April 29th, 2022. All day today and tomorrow on Cork's 96FM, winning your way to see Ed Sheeran and grab a copy of his new album, Equals. Stay tuned to Cork's 96FM. I'll have a snatch of a song, a snatch of an Ed Sheeran song in the next 20 minutes. You have to identify it for me. Yep, for that, good. 1850-715-996 on haunted places or places that give you the spookies. Uh, on Twitter, Kremen86, whoever that is, says, under St. Patrick's Church, there were crypts down there from the 1800s. You had to go down a ladder into a hatch. Not haunted, but chilling. Hi, PJ. Uh, I always remember reading this online. It said a young lady married a soldier stationed long ago at Charles Fort. Uh, one night on duty, the soldier fell asleep. As punishment, he was executed. It is said today that the white lady can be spotted around the grounds, clad in her wedding dress, in search of those who stole her husband's life. Yeah. Any other places that give you the willies and that you wouldn't go there? Day or night? <laughs> uh, particularly tomorrow night. On long COVID, and we had a good long conversation with Tanya Buwalda. Ted said, great interview with Tanya, such a positive, focused person. I wish her well. Maeve, a long COVID sounds like a lot of long-term chronic illnesses. She's describing me, and I have Crohn's and Crohn's arthritis. And Lynn on WhatsApp, it sounds so like fibromyalgia too. Do anything one day, you pay for it the next my heart goes out to her. A lot of love for Tanya. There's a particular flyer going around social media to do with trick-or-treating at the weekend. And I'll promise I'll give you that before the end of the day because it's a good, it's just a few things to bear in mind as trick-or-treating. And look, I've always said trick-or-treating is a pain in the ass for me. But for the people out doing it, it's fun. And for the kids out doing it, it's fun. And old grumps like me need to cop ourselves on for an hour or two. That having been said, still eh, still eh. <laughs> Come here, if you want anything for Christmas, you'd nearly want to be ordering it now. It's eight weeks today is Christmas Eve. And if you want anything, you'd nearly want to be ordering it now, including putting in your order for important things like turkeys and hams to make sure that the butcher has them for you in the run-up to the festive season. And as for gifts, particularly electronic stuff and stuff that has to come in on a truck, you really would want to be getting your spake in now. Eugene Drennan is president of the Irish Road Haulage Association. When we last spoke, Eugene, we talked about the shortage of drivers in the industry here. I'm sure, if anything, it hasn't gotten better so heading into Christmas with eight weeks to go, uh, should we want to be ordering now? Good morning. Absolutely. I think uh, my conversation, which is that time, PJ, was anything that's very important, you have it in time, be looking at it rather than be looking for it. Uh, it hasn't changed anything. Uh, the world and the world of containers and the world of manufacturing is still in turmoil from the COVID and uh, everything is slower, slower coming to even to get the product. So make sure you have it. Hmm. Then within ourselves, with the lack of dissension and haulage here in Ireland now, we're being very badly hit with the budgets and with price increases. And um, it's it's not looking good for 
having a happy camp with those either. Mm. So definitely for Christmas, have your stuff got and have it in time. It's kind of a perfect storm, isn't it, Eugene, in that you had COVID and the damage that it did. You also had the the, the huge container getting stuck in the canal, yeah. which yeah. blocked everything up. I don't think you, you explained to me the last time just how that wasn't just that one that one boat. It put loads of other ones on delay. That's you it. then have Brexit, which didn't help. And you've got now the carbon budget. That's not helping either. No, it's not helping. On the container side, if I deal with that first for you, PJ, um, you saw, I'd say most people saw where the President of America, Joe Biden, has put uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles container ports on 24-7 working arrangements so that they can clear the back out. We need that in Dublin as well. We have had confined, restricted times in the port of Dublin, which is the main uh, container terminal for Ireland. Now, some come into Cork, into Ring of Skiddy, and some come into Watford. But the biggest flow and the connectivity is through Dublin, mm. unfortunately. And um, that badly needs to be loosened up and, uh, you know, longer opening hours to be sure that there's a better flow to the country and that uh, containers can be got. Mm. Um, is that is that, that, that look, if, if, a, if a ship is coming with containers on it, and if the time it's coming to Dublin is quarter to three in the morning, there's got to be, it's got to be open yes. because that, that, that yeah. ship doesn't want to be waiting until six. Well, it, no, it does open to unload the containers, but perhaps it wouldn't load the trucks. Yes. You know, which is, is, is um, it, they've set times for far loading trucks and they're kind of rigid on the times and the close, you know, how we would consider early. Now, different ones, is, I don't want to give a different time because it's about, four, five, six uh, container depots, all slightly different. But because of the shortness of, of time of day now and, the, and the, sh- the lack of drivers and just the flexibility, the, since we've opened up, the traffic flows have got a lot heavier and Dublin has got quite choked again. And just to get the job done, we need the time and we need the flexibility. Simple as that. Yeah. How are we um, for, for shortage of drivers? I know they've been a huge shortage in the UK. They've gotten to the point of offering massive wage increases over there trying to attract people. I know in America, they're, they're mad looking for, for truck drivers and they've increased a lot of the wages, particularly for the interstate guys. How are we fixed here with, with, with um, trucks and, and drivers? Yeah, we're, we, are, we are short um, of drivers for sure. And uh, we're only barely getting by. We badly need uh, support from somewhere. Now, it's, we've put plans to the government and they're slow to come to it, the sort of um, piecemeal approach to it. Uh, and then the vice president of our, our association, Paul Jackson, because we could get our own people and, and young chaps and young girls who didn't, weren't really third level or didn't want to go to third level or coming through the trades. If we can attract them back to the industry, it's the best way, without a shadow of a doubt. And we have um, courses set up now for driver training, uh, traineeships through the LITs and under the guise of the ETB with uh, Skinnet Ireland full funding it. But they're lackluster in getting them going. The impetus hasn't come to it yet. They go very well in some areas of the country, not so well for the most part. Uh, there is one coming to Cork starting in January if anybody's interested. And it's quite a good training scheme and you come out, as I say, with all the tickets, different things you have to do, different skill sets you have to have. If you had to pay for the, the course, it would cost you maybe four and a half thousand. It's all funded if people want to go through that course. The other way, of course, is to get people here 
as has been the way for quite some years now, from the eastern side of the European Union. But they're slow to come back uh, to us still because of the trouble of COVID and different um, problems. And that, you know, their own economies are open up and they're getting jobs at home and things like that. But there are two countries on the fringe of the EU, uh, Ukraine and Moldova. And we have the conundrum there. The EU or Ireland doesn't accept an exchange of their license for us to imply them. But Poland does. Ah. and Romania does. And they can come into Ireland driving one of their country's trucks, but we can't have them here driving for us. So that's crazy. Right. And also, uh, we need an extension. There's People can come to here under permit. And um, uh, the Minister Damien English uh, opened up the the um, number of people who can come under permit yesterday for all the skills uh, that are required. But to ours, there's only five countries we can exchange the license with. Uh, so we're, we are confined by that. And of those five countries, three of them never will come here. Yeah. There's only two. And if if we had got classification of being an essential worker under that, some other countries, and one that's mentioned is Argentina. And why it's mentioned is they're in quite disarray. Uh, their people need work. And the people who are intended coming here are people who have fled with the flight of the Arabs to speak Spanish with a Cork accent. And they're looking towards Ireland so right. because a little bit of connectivity there yeah. still. But they, so uh, what you're uh, saying in, in short and in simple terms is it's going to be hard to get drivers at, at, at this point is, in yeah. time. Yeah. Eugene, find many the, I, we, know that we all know that there's a climate crisis and we need to do something to be ready for it but I think also your industry is very worried about the cost of transport the yes. cost of haulage because of the, yes. the, the green plan yes we're absolutely at breaking point we're not just as um, in trouble we're at breaking point because we've come through Brexit and Covid every haulier and haulage company you know it's a family that's behind that and particularly in your area there of Cork like, it's indigenous with transport since this foundation state beyond, with the same families, the line coming through. So you're not just talking about a, a cold limited company, you're talking about a family business. And they're absolutely at breaking point because they have all had to work because of the shortage of drivers, because of all the problems that COVID and Brexit has thrown up, which are many, you know, they're just a snowball of, of problems every day. And now we're crippled with the costs because we have no choice but to use diesel. It's the only thing that will give us the torque and the pulling power with the service line of having service stations everywhere we go. We have to be able to go to Estonia, Lithuania, up to Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and down to the toe of Italy with the goods for Ireland, our goods back to Ireland. I think COVID has shown everything in this country. Uh, everything moves in a truck at least three times before it gets to you. Mm-hmm. So we're the only show in town. And we're not sticking our our feet in or our head in the ground as regards the science of uh, the greening uh, and of the carbon because we're aware of it and we're trying to our best to get there but we can clean diesel and the other reason we can't use any other fuel other than diesel is because we're an island if we if you know hydrogen is often mentioned we don't have hydrogen vehicles available as of yet and there's a little bit of time before they will be here, like four, five, six years perhaps, or longer. And our gas, was either or any of these alternative fuels, only so many of them will be allowed on the ships because they're a bomb. Yeah. Collectively, they're a bomb. And if, if one, you know, if we had a fire or an explosion, it'll set the whole lot off. 
and the ship will sink. So we have no choice but to use diesel. Now, we can go very green, and we've put all those proposals to government, and we're not being heard. And we, collectively, in the transport industry, paid $73 million in carbon tax last year. And since this extra taxation came on, five years ago, four years ago, whenever it was, we would have paid about $300 million to date, with no incentives coming back to our industry to get us greener. We're up for it. We embrace it. We cannot do it alone. Yeah. And also then we have we had the general budget putting uh, next to two and a half cents per litre on it. We now have a carbon budget coming in. With They're going to sanction us if we don't get uh, pulled down our emissions. But it's a vicious circle. Is it the egg or is it the chicken first? We cannot afford uh, to go green. Now, parts of our, our industry have gone green. It's a broad church college. It, it, it crosses many counties and many different uh, types of business. But you take people in, in the construction industry around the quarry industry, they haven't been able to get increases for years or surcharges or anything, plus they just came through the recession. So a new vehicle for them is around 150000 now, yeah. and they're left with very old vehicles. And the exhaust system on that truck probably costs about 35000 yeah. And that exhaust system is there to go green, to help it. So we have to get some way of support to go green. And well, what I think you're hearing, I'm hearing from you, Eugene, is we're, we're doing we're doing our best, but but the new rules are not exactly helping, and the new budget changes are not exact, exactly helping. It's one I've, 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 I've noticed. Yeah. When this tax went through the doors, the minister of the day said it was to induce and to help and to coax uh, people to go green, and we've paid all the tax. Where's the other part of the bargain? Yeah. And it's at a time of the greatest turmoil in living memory of the world. It's absolutely in turmoil over COVID for different reasons, you know, whether it's manufacturing or illness or poor people or whatever. It's in turmoil. And fuel got through the roof and gas, Putin and Russia holding the rest of the world to ransom. Mm. And they put up the prices on us. Now, we're a generator of growth. Transport yeah. is a generator of growth because if you have a reasonable price, transport infrastructure, you know, everybody can do their business gotcha, on it. And gotcha. the it's, 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 it's a perfect storm, like I said at the, at, at the yeah. start. Last, lastly, no, it, Eugene, it, it's and I. gone to a full hurricane. <laughs> Go it's back. gone beyond the storm, PJ. All right. I, and I probably will come back to it because the green agenda is one that's going to dominate us for the next six to eight months. And a lot of people are not happy with what they're being asked to do the hauliers, the farmers, many, many other people. But just lastly, before we finish, yes. uh, and I started with this. If you want something for Christmas that comes on a truck, you should be ordering now. Oh, you should be getting it very soon. Order date is nearly gone by. You should be getting it in great urgency to that. All right. Okay, listen, Eugene Drennan, President of the Irish Road Haulage Association. Order it. Order it today because you might not get it. It's only eight weeks to Christmas Eve. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Social media is full of influencers telling you what to wear, how to live and what to say. Well now it's your chance to tell us what to play. Nobody does it better. 
Here's our tunes and become a music influencer to win cash with Cork's 96FM. The Monster Music Survey. Take part for your chance to win €1,000. To get involved, go to 96FM.ie and click the survey link. Or check out our social media pages. Nobody does it Become a Cork's 96FM music influencer. Do the Monster Music Survey now and you could win cash. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Quartz 96 FM. Now, over the weekend, how you'll pass the time if you're not trick-or-treating and you're not searching for haunted places and you're not doing up your face like an old witch or whatever you're going to do. You might sit down and watch a good horror movie. I love them. Right. Some of the classics you could watch a hundred times. Some of them are awful. Some of them are great. Some of them changed the game over the years. Gordon Hayden has a podcast, which I'm only allowed to use this at Halloween. Scared shitless podcast. Gordon, good morning to you. Good morning to you, PJ. And it's great to hear that you're a horror fan. Uh, yeah, I, I, I prefer sort of the, 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 the movie of the, of the very unexpected rather than ghosts and goblins and ghouls. Um, stuff that yeah. goes bump in the night. I noticed one of the, one of your favourites in terms of a game changer was the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, I have to say, Peter, when this came out, though, in 1999, it really did shake things up. Even the filmmakers ended up on the front cover of Time magazine because no one had ever done what they did back in the late 90s because the whole found footage subgenre within uh, horror movies and just in, in general films had been done to death at this stage. But... Mm. Back in the late 90s, the internet was still very much in its infancy. And so what they did prior to the film coming out was themselves and the production company, they created a marketing plan which more or less put out there that three young college filmmakers had gone missing in these woods and that um, there, there was suspected that their uh, disappearance may be centered on an urban myth around this Blair Witch and the actors in question who played the college students, they removed their profiles from the very popular IMDb um, website. Now, for any cinephile will know, IMDb is like sort of the mecca if you're looking for any information on an actor or a movie or director or whatever. And uh, so they removed their profiles to create, again, a sense of realism that these people had genuinely gone missing mm. and everybody bought into it. Oh, it was so, like it was presented as a documentary and... and... You knew it was a make-yuppie film. You knew it was a film, but within 10 minutes, you'd forgotten that disbelief. Totally, PJ. Absolutely. People kind of thought, oh, my God, are we kind of watching here um, the last um, actions of these people? And the, 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 this footage has been cobbled together by other filmmakers. And so it really worked, and it was very tense. And at times you kind of think how this should have worked. But what the filmmakers did was... When they cast the three actors, they said, right, we're all going to go off into the woods for a few days. And part and parcel of this is that a lot of this is going to be made up as we're going along. Um, You will find certain locations within the forest that you need to travel to. All of you will be given camcorders and you will all film your actions. So at night, and if anyone remembers the scenes in like in the tents, the three of them are all freaked out because they don't know what's going on. Because genuinely, the actors did not know what was going on. And they, uh, they thought to themselves, have we kind of gotten in over our heads here? Maybe the guys who have hired us have got 
nefarious um, intentions yeah. here. It was and exceptionally so well done. It was so, so well done. And of course, not to spoil it, but it is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Another one that you like, and again, a big fan of it myself. I remember Nightmare, no, it was Nightmare on Elm Street 29 or something like that. But the original movie, that stop your heart. That's true, PJ. Look, we've, I, the thing is, I've gone for an awful lot of classics today, and it's purely because we're in a, in a cycle at the moment of remakes and uh, endless sequels. Look at Michael Myers. That guy is never going to die. But if you go back to 1984, when the slasher genre um, was kind of in a bit of a, in a creaky state of affairs because um, Halloween had been massive in 78, and then you had the knockoff Friday the 13th, and then you had a whole slew of derivative knockoffs that came along. But Wes Craven... In 1984, he really shook up the genre with the character of Freddy Krueger. Unlike, say, Jason and Michael Myers and even Leatherface uh, before them, what he decided to do was that Freddy Krueger, people forget just what an evil character he was because he would go on to become this pop culture icon. Mm. But people forget that Freddy Krueger was actually a paedophile. He was a child killer that had been killed by the parents of Elm Street. They had burned him alive because of what he did. And he terrorized his victims because uh, not only the, the assaults that he would have carried out, but he also created, remember the glove with the, with the, with the daggers at the end, the blades? And so the idea was that he would come back to seek his revenge on the children of the parents, um, some of the parents of Elm Street, and he would invade the dreams. And this hadn't been done before. And this was uh, evil um, through and through. And so that first film still has a huge power in comparison to the sequel. Yeah, it's a remarkable film. Now, I, I, I noticed that you list The Wicker Man, but the mm. original... Now, people will say today we're talking about very old movies, but in terms of horror, the old ones are the best, for any number of reasons. The Wicker Man. Oh, I've, I've seen this, so I know oh, what you're going to tell people. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that, PJ, you being a horror fan, because there's, uh, there's those of a certain vintage, when they hear The Wicker Man, they're straight away thinking of that Nicolas Cage travesty, which, no, like, this is a great example of why you need to go to the originals and avoid these uh, horrendous remakes, because the Nicolas Cage one got it so wrong, but in uh, this film, the original came out in 73, directed by Robin Hardy, stars the late Edward Woodward and the late Christopher Lee, and it's just a really interesting premise this is folk horror through and through you've got a a very uh, god-fearing uh, police officer um, who is uh, sent to this uh, remote scottish island because a little girl has been uh, abducted she's gone missing and he's there to investigate uh, this case and interview some of the locals and it's he's not long on the island when he starts to realize these people are just a little bit different there's just something not right mm-hmm. in the air <laughs> and it's almost as if everybody's in slight cahoots with what has gone on. And then he starts to see some very strange, paganistic-like things going on. And PJ, I, I don't know for you, but that ending, which we won't spoil, it, it's, it, I put it up there as one of the great twist endings. Oh, yeah. I put it up there nearly with the sixth sense in terms of a great twist ending. When I first saw that film as a child, I did not see it coming. And I was oh. blown away. And, and bear in mind, this is a movie that is 48 years old and still has the capacity when you say at the end, what just happened? Yeah, it's incredible. The performances are excellent. And Christopher Lee at the time, he was so passionate about this film, PJ, because he'd be making... Well, he was the king of horror anyway, like... 
load of that stuff. So for him, it was so different. And the 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 um the film company lost faith in the film. They just they they kind of really wanted to bury it. They just didn't think it was going to be successful at all. And Christopher Lee had to call in an awful lot of favors with film critics and journalists to say, look, can you write about this film, please? This is so different to what I've been making. And it was only through his gumption and the um, the connections that he had, it made people um, sit up and take notice of the film because it, it played as a double bill. They were going right back into the midst of time when this was a thing where it was like the B film um, right. on a double bill. It was the warm-up so anyway, for another movie. <laughs> That's right. So, Listen, yeah, well, I, I, I could I could go on about this all day and maybe we'll talk again in the future, but you've got uh, The Wicker Man, the three recommendations for the weekend, if you've not seen them before, The Wicker Man, not the, not the Nicolas Cage version, The Blair Witch Project, which will frighten the living sugar out of you, <laughs> and A Nightmare on Elm Street. And can I add two more to them, Gordon? They're not on your list, but they would be mine. The Exorcist and The Original Omen. Classics. Oh. The original okay. Omen. None of the, the sequels were brutal, but the original That's Omen fun. is an all-time classic. The Omen is an absolute gem of a film. Yeah. Oh, listen, that's a cracker. Well done. We could spend the day at it. Gordon Hayden of the Scared Shitless Project our, uh, podcast. Uh, have a listen to an episode. It's great. Brilliant. There's, there's three, there's five movies to try this weekend. You'll find them. They're on all the various places. Even if you look on YouTube, you'll find some of them. Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. Blair Witch Project. Uh, the Wicker Man, the first one from 73. The Exorcist or the original Omen. Enjoy. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Marty Morrissey, how much do you love what you do? Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, PJ. How are you? Great. Uh, my well, yes, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, lovely to talk to you, and thank you for having me on your program this morning, PJ. We 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 also go back a bit, uh, the two of us, uh, from my days in Cork. So I'm delighted. Yeah, I suppose I'm very lucky, uh, PJ. Um, I'm lucky that uh, I, I'm supposed to be in a job that I love, and uh, very privileged and honoured to be given the microphone and given the microphone in uh, mm. in, in Cork Multi Channel when I started off in Cork Local Radio. Uh, when it was there, and uh, obviously in, in sport and across various platforms on RT since. So I've been, you know, privileged, lucky. Yeah. Those opening montages of yours at, at, on All Ireland Day have become famous since that day in, yeah. in, in 2016. I was driving at the time, and I was going home to watch Were the match you? on the telly, and I turned the radio up, and you had me in tears at the end of it. It was just oh, well, magnificent. Marty, a Clareman born, born in Cork, in Mallow, divided <laughs> loyalties, for example, in twenty in the, when we last met the Holy Moses match. In twenty thirteen, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Divided loyalties. Yeah, all, all very much so. Yes, yeah. half the family are in, in North Cork, and uh, and Cork has been exceptionally good to me over the years. Between going to college there, Cork Multi Channel was my first full time broadcast uh, job. Then to go back to to leave it, go to London. Go back when Claire FM was starting, uh, you know, when independent radio like 96FM started and uh, then go back to Cork again uh, to, to uh, go into Cork Local Radio. So, yeah, I mean, I very much divided loyalties, I suppose, there. If, I'm, I'm, if I could say I have two counties that I love. Yeah. Uh, and But Cork, 
I don't know, there is something very special about Cork, and, and I know you know that, but I know it because of the kindness of people, and I do feel, other than Clare, that my home place is Cork, um, mm. because I have so much connections there. Yeah. You know? yeah, you studied, for example, you studied at UCC, wanted to be a doctor originally. Mm. I didn't know that, by the way. I didn't know you originally wanted to be a doctor. Oh. And you went on to then be a I teacher. Yeah, I did. And I mean, you know, I was... <laughs> PJ, I was one of those teenagers that didn't know what the hell I, I wanted to do or, or where, and I was deciding. I mean, as I wrote in this book that when I was a child, um, I, I thought about priesthood because I thought, geez, that they dress up and they do all sorts of things. And the Marietta Biscuit was the host and put on a towel. Then the bus driver in New York became uh, the objective. I used to go around the apartment. Remember, I was an only child, PJ, so yeah. I was kind of kind of entertaining myself. And you were an only child of only children, if I remember rightly. Yeah, correct. My mother was an only child from just outside Mallow and Dollarelle, and then my father obviously was an only child as well. So, yeah, so no aunts, no no uncles, no first cousins. But you entertain yourself as a child. So I was doing all sorts of things. And even when I became teenage years, you know, I had to kind of apply myself uh, to work hard to do any sort of a decent living cert. And then... Uh, I think my mother had the motivation for me to be a doctor rather than myself, but um, it was it was it was grand, you know. I mean, I got a change, and it was, I suppose, I, I, I sport was the was the thing that I was suppose I was highly yeah. motivated by, yeah. and uh, wanted to march behind the Artain Boys Band, um, whether it be for for Clare or Cork. I did, I, I I I wrote to Frank Murphy and asked for a, a trial, you know, for the Cork Minor Footballers. So I, I got a I got a trial. I wanted to play for Cork, and I, uh, I I was lucky enough. I I know I was not feeling well, which is thanks for God doesn't happen that often. I did a trial above in McCroom, and uh, I wasn't. I know I was sick that day, but I played anyway. But I I got a second trial. I got a, to the final trial, which was held at Nemo Rangers, uh-huh. and uh, Sean Martin, yeah. me all Martin, now the Taoiseach's brother, yeah. uh, got got the Cork minor goalkeeper's jersey that year, uh, and. Um, uh, but at least I tried, if you know what Man, I mean. Good. But it was great. It was good. It was good. You will so try tried, anything, you know, Marty Morrissey. You yeah. will try anything. Where did that come from? I mean, Dancing with the Star. Where did it come from? I don't know. I think uh, I've always, always had an appreciation of, of life. And um, I always wanted to, to, to do things and, and to get out there and experience different things and different aspects. And I suppose I'd reached a stage where when I started, um, as, as as you did uh, in, in various, in, in, down in Cork, I, Cork Multi-Channel gave me, like when I started PJ, I was back of a tractor and trailer doing matches. Right. But when I went to Cork Multi-Channel, it was news. I had to fill Cork this week uh, with program material and content, and I really enjoyed it. But it's still, despite that, and the same with Cork Local Radio, which was news. I, that was my job. I, I, I got Mary Wilson's job, as I call it. Mary was moving to Dublin at the time. That's right. And became drive time presenter and legal correspondent and all that sort of thing. So I got the job in Cork and um, it was news. But I was still highly motivated by sport. But then when I did my sports thing after a number of years, I said, you know what, I'd like to try something else now. And then dancing came along. Now, the RT had been good in the sense that they gave me the plowing, uh, plowing That's live. That's right. Which we did in, um, which I really enjoyed. That was great crack. Um, above and country leash and awfully with Anya Lawler and uh, then they gave me dancing when well, they asked me to do Dancing with the Stars and mm. I was really hesitant about it because I thought you know that's a different type of dance the dance I would do you know was the jibes you know <laughs> um, pulling the hands and twirling around and the, and the waltz and yeah. you know uh, the 
there were no slow dances in, in Dancing no, with the Stars. No, I remember, and so I remember, I remember watching you. Yeah. And what I remember was, Artie, and you addressed this in a couple of <laughs> people are not very kind sometimes. You don't like unkindness, particularly on social media. No, I don't. I, I think it's unnecessary. I just don't believe that we should be doing that to each other. I, I think um, it doesn't. Look, I've been lucky, uh, PJ, in the sense that in, in all aspects, and I appreciate it, but, uh, you know, in the sense I don't get... Uh, ripped apart on social media you always get the negative comment and I don't know I'm the type of person if there were 20 positive comments on social media after you and I do this interview and there was one who thinks you're an absolute jerk that would bother me yeah you see <laughs> you the one I, mean? I see the one and it and I dwell and I remember uh, and I don't mind saying I was doing all Ireland final there whenever you know for the last couple of years and at half time I'd look at my phone and um, Michael died and be beside me. He said, what the hell are you doing? Throw that phone away. Mm. I know, but I just want to see how we're, how we're doing. And uh, Ten pages of nice stuff will be spoiled by one line of bad stuff. <laughs> we shouldn't <laughs> let ourselves do that, but it, but, but it happens. No. But the, yeah, the, the one thing about you is, and the famous incident with Joe Brawley is reflected on in the book, mm. and of course the, the row with, 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 um, with Brian Cody. But, mm. And one thing I think... You're a man who seems to be unable to hold a grudge. From where does that come from, Marty? I don't know. I just think, look, um, again, I suppose I've always had that attitude of life is short. Why would, I, why would I eat myself away by holding a grudge when, you know, number one, if I make a mistake, and look, we all make mistakes, and I've made mistakes, and when you make a mistake, you put up your hand and you apologize quickly. I think the problem with Joe was it took him two or three days to apologize. But he did apologize. And we, we, we were good friends. I don't know where that comment came from, genuinely. I, I mean, we hadn't had a row with nothing. Uh, so it came out of the blue. I think he was just trying to be smart arse. And uh, it didn't, it kind of rebounded. Um, but I found myself on the front pages of the tabloids. Um, and some of them were, to be fair, the tabloids were brilliant because they came back on a Monday morning and said, you are not ugly, Martin. He said, I was uglier than the Cavan football team or some comment like that. And and he can the the the, the daily. What he said was the cabin football ugly, team played football that is uglier than Marty Morrissey, which is typical <laughs> of, typical of Joe Joe Brawley. It was a, yeah. was not a nice thing to say, but again, no, no grudges no. held. And, and the Brian Cody interview, you asked the obvious question of the day about the disputed, the disputed penalty, and he got stuck in you, and you made that up. You don't hold grudges, and I think that's one of the th- the reasons why people are are so warm towards you, Marty. Well, thank you, PJ. And look, I, I just don't believe in holding. I think you can eat and have those kind of incidents in your life and you can let them eat you away. Or you say, do you know what? Uh, they apologised. No, Brian Cody didn't apologise. Nor did he have to. He had his opinion. We had a big debate about it mm. a couple of weeks afterwards because I was covering boxing at the time and I was going the Monday after the All-Ireland Hurling Final in 2009, I think it was. I was covering boxing and I was flying out to an Olympic qualifier. So I kind of avoided to be honest, a lot of the, the the stuff that was going on. But when I did come back, I rang him and we had a great chat. And I said, look, Brian, I had to ask that question. He thought it should be about the four in a row. Mm. But I said, in your, in your, when you were speaking to me live on air, you said to me how great Henry Shefflin was to stand over that penalty, which he was. But I, I, and when you, when you said it, I was going to ask you anyway, it wasn't that fact of what you said. I was going to say, well, did you think it was a penalty? Because it changed the All Ireland yeah. hurling final result that day. I've no doubt. And he and, 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 and he, he lit off you. Decision. 
He lit it. He lit yeah. off oh, you. If, Ma- could, if the ground could have opened up for those five minutes of I was watching I would it. I was watching road. it, and I felt so sorry for you because I knew as a journalist you had to ask the question. But correct. but he turned. Yeah, correct, yeah. He turned on you. Lastly, Marty, in all hmm. the years of watching sport and working in all kinds of sport, what's the greatest sporting moment you've ever attended and ever commented on? Well, you know, it, it's funny. People think. Uh, because being uh, Claire, the Claire uh, 92 beating Kerry and the fame, when, which was a great, great moment. I mean, when you're from a, a county There will be a cow like milked Claire, in Clare tonight, yeah. Correct, correct. To beat Kerry was just fantastic. And I'm sure all Cork people would appreciate it. When you beat Kerry, it's a huge achievement. And then, obviously, the, the, the Holy Moses came along. Because I could have said anything at that moment, because Donald Donovan <laughs> has never scored in his life, never scored since. And he scores this point. When I thought Patrick Horgan had scored the winner for Cork, and so be it. And as I said, I'd have been happy for them as well, because obviously half of me being Cork. But funny enough, the the, the, the most emotional moment, if that's what you want to call it, was I was commentating on radio in 2012 in the Excel Arena in London. Katie. Jimmy McGee was to my left, and Katie Taylor was winning her gold medal at the Olympics. Yeah. And to be surrounded, that arena had 12,000 people, I think. It was all Irish. And you see at every exit, you see British soldiers in their gear and they're taking selfies with the Irish. And they seeing the fields of Athenry reverberating around that arena. And you say to yourself, gosh, this is more than just an Olympic gold medal. This is, there's, there's a little bit of history here. And as the Irish left the Excel Arena, they sang the fields of Athenry down the street. It was just, it was just a, a special honour to be there. So I put Katie up at the very top because of all uh, the cultural impact, the, the, the impact it had. I think because the English took Katie to their to their hearts, and to to, to be Irish and to see Katie fulfil her dream. Mm. Um, yeah, funny enough. Now, and I'm a mad GA person, but I put Katie up there at number one. I think a lot of people would too. Marty Morrissey signing the book. It's Marty in Mahon Point, three o'clock Sunday. Great to have you on the opinion line and congratulations on the book. Thanks, Marty. 1850-715-996. Very last biz- bit of business. Nadia Rice is project manager with the Dragon of Shandon. Uh, great to have it back properly this year. Nadia, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Big weekend. A lot of work we are into indeed. this. Yes, yeah. The weather's in our favour today. We're very lucky. <laughs> good, good, good. So what's the plans? Where can people go? What can they see? So there's loads on. So we're working between six and nine on Halloween night. There's going to be bits on all around the place. The main areas we're going to be kind of centred are North Main Street. So we're going to be in St. Peter's um, and in the Gate Cinema. There's a free screening of um, Cork Shorts. So that's going to be bookable online as well. Um, It's going to be a great night, I think. Uh, So there's stories down in read by the members of the public. We ask people to send in their ghost stories and they're going to be compiled in um, and played in St. Peter's during the night. And also on the Cole Key, there'll be performances. Then up in Shandon, we're having more performances. We're working with three brilliant groups who are normally involved in the Dragon of Shandon. We're going to have Cork City Samba. Uh, they'll be doing two performances, one on the Cole Key at 7 and another in Shandon at 8.15. And then we're going to have Joan Denise Moriarty School of Dance, some brilliant young people, dancers there, uh, also on the Cole Key and on, in Shandon. Um, and then UCC Department of Theatre are going to be animating the area in Shandon. So there's going to be a lot of excitement there. 
Fantastic. And a lot of work got into this. The costumes, the, the designs are enormous. It just, it's yes. one of the best festivals in the city in the whole, in the whole year. It's just a we spectacle. We're so proud of it. Yeah, we're so excited for it. So it can't be the parade this year, but we're really excited about what we're doing instead, which is going to be able to accommodate so many people moving through. And we're also doing a treasure trail, um, which will lead you through all our different installations. So there's clues to be solved. And the first participants will get a prize as well. Um, so that will be all available. Our website has it. And we have our flyers out there that have the map, um, which shows you all the different areas. So you'll make sure not to miss anything as well. All right. OK. Is there the Facebook or a website people can look at for more? Absolutely. So if you go to www.dragonofshandon.com, all the information. And we're on uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Quirk Art Link as well. So you'll find loads of information, loads of photos. And we love to receive people's photos as well. So if they want to take anything, tag us at uh, Dragon of Shandon 2021 and we'd love to see it. Nadia, have a great festival. Uh, enjoy the weekend. That's Nadia Rice, Project Manager with the Dragon of Shandon.